0: This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time, on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. Public perceptions of mental health issues have changed dramatically over the last 15 years, and nowhere is this more apparent than in the rampant over-medication of Americans. In his new book, Comfortably Numb, Charles Barker explores the ways in which pharmaceutical companies first create the need for a drug and then rush to fill it. Barber worked for 10 years in New York City, shelters for the homeless mentally ill, a senior administrator at the Connection, an innovative social services agency, and a lecturer in psychiatry at the Yale University of Medicine. His work has appeared in the New York Times and Scientific American Mind. Charles Barber, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks very much. And how are you today?
1: I'm good. I'm I'm uh, sort of um, been very very active and uh, reeling was probably not the, quite the right word, but sort of surprised at the, the amount of attention that the book has had. It came out exactly a month ago today, and I've probably done an interview a day about wow. national TV, um, ton, a ton of interest, and uh, feel like I'm hitting a nerve.
0: Well, it was amazing timing, too, in that there's been several reports that have come out within the last month too now, now you, did you know anything about these reports coming out
1: no not at all yeah. not at all um you know it's serendipity
0: ah, well very good then it was it's was good for book sales good for book sales I suppose so
1: I, it's it's hard to figure out what's good for book sales but perhaps perhaps mm-hmm. you're right
0: now now what makes america the most comfortably numb uh country on the planet
1: well, I think there's three things that happened over the course uh, of the late 80s, 90s, um, uh, the, the, the primary one being the, um, the allowance of um, drugs being advertised on television. Um, and that happened in the mid to late 90s. It wasn't allowed previously. And it's only in New Zealand and the United States and the world that we allow the TV advertising of drugs. And that has been the critical change, Um, you know, probably you noticed when you were watching TV. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden you saw ads for Nexium and Claritin and Prozac and Zoloft, and now they're uh, doing a lot of sleep aids like Rosarum and Ambien. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that did is it really pushed the blockbuster drugs, uh, the big, big sellers of which psychiatric drugs are a big part, uh, very big sellers, and brought those into sort of, you know, our consciousness as household names and household staples. And, you know, I argue in the book that it sort of turned these drugs into commodities. The fact that they were advertised, you know, next to toothpaste and Chevrolet sort of gave the idea that they were just like toothpaste and Chevrolet you know, products like anything else, and drugs are drugs. Drugs are significant things. The other things that happened around the same time, uh, managed care, the switch to managed care, uh, managed care sp- very much went into drugs um, as opposed to psychotherapy and basically made it very easy for drugs to be tr- approved and really made it difficult for therapists to, to you know, make a competitive salary. And then the, the, the third thing, and this goes back farther, is the expansion of psychiatric diagnosis. Um, and so in the 50s, the first diagnostic manual of the American Psychiatric Association had about 60 diagnoses and, and very much concentrating on serious mental illness like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Uh, the latest diagnostic manual has over 300 diagnoses, and it includes things like adjustment disorder, which is basically having a difficult time adjusting to, you know, divorce or job change. And so these, the illnesses and the drugs became democratized and generalized to a broad population as, as a result of all this stuff. Now,
0: how, how dangerous is all this diagnosis, too? I mean, do we really need all of it? Is there a point, uh, is there a, a cutoff line that we should have as far as uh, giving a name to somebody who's in discomfort?
1: Yeah. Well, that's one of the problems with psychiatry. You know, to be fair, psychiatry is a very difficult, you know, you're dealing with human pain, psychic pain, and it's very difficult to comprehend, you know, where it comes from. It's not like other areas of medicine where you can do a test. You've got it or you don't. But I, as you mentioned, have spent a lot of time working with people with really serious conditions, with schizophrenia, with bipolar disorder, with major depression. Um, And you know how th- there's really no comparison between the serious conditions and far lesser conditions. And I argue in the book... Um particularly with depression, um, that we've kind of confused clinical major depression, which is a malevolent, horrific illness, with the blues or being bummed out or it's February and, you know, I'm having financial problems or I have relationship problems. And, and a lot of people that have gone to take the drugs and talk to their doctors about pers- getting prescribed the drugs, it's, you know, for life problems as opposed to major clinical depression. So my book is very much written from the perspective of working with people with serious illness and sort of wondering how we generalize things that are very effective and, um, you know, I never... The, the drugs, I think, can be very, very effective for people with serious conditions, how we sort of generalize that to, you know, lesser conditions and life problems.
2: Now, uh, go ahead, Mike. No, I'm just curious, because you're, you're talking about these three areas. Did What is the relationship with, between the drug industry and psychiatry in terms of expanding the diagnosis? Is there a relationship there?
1: There's not a conspiracy theory relationship. I mean, um, you know, the people that came up with the diagnoses did that, um, you know, independently, and there Mm -hmm. were committees of, you know, hundreds of people. Uh, Many of them are excellent academic psychiatrists. What there is, however, is there's a... um, you know, many of the people who who come up with the criteria for diagnosis consult with the drug companies. Um, in the New England Journal of Medicine a number of years ago, they had changed their policy and they had to have doc, uh, journal art, art, writers of journal articles disclose their relationships with drug companies. Um, and... What happened was it, there with one author, there was so many relationships that it was too much to actually print in the journal, and they had to put it on their website. Um, and so there is a uh, huge relationship between psychiatry and the drug companies. And again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. It's more they work they. Are colleagues with a number of these people they 're on the payroll, and that will change how you perceive you know how a drug works
2: mm-hmm. that 's the well that 's the payroll aspect of it it 's not maybe not a conspiracy but certainly it's an it 's an opportunity on the part of a, a drug company who has who has somebody on their payroll with an insight into a particular diagnosis right i mean that they help them develop some kind of a, they're going to help them with the development of a drug i would i would assume
1: right right and and you know i would say that it's even if their intentions are perfectly valid the fact that you uh, you know, have relationships with people that you that work for the drug companies. That you know, the drug rep comes by every, you know, very often to shower you with gifts and things like that, which is what happens. Um, can change the way that you perceive these things.
2: I have a, just sort of a, a side note, sidebar question here. You said that uh, the advertising that is, that began in the United States and New Zealand. Do we see a comparable? Um, uh, d- does New Zealand mirror our? Behavior in terms of buying uh, drugs on the you know someone
1: the- asked me that and I don't know uh, it's an excellent question would be an excellent. Uh, article, you know, idea for a journal article. Uh, What I have seen, I don't write about in the book, but I remember looking at a study that compared Detroit with Toronto um, and how the differences in diagnosis and the prescribing rates between those two cities, which of course are very close, but obviously ones in the United States, which has managed care and the drug advertising and uh, Canada, which has I believe a National Health Service um, and seeing incredible discrepancies in how things are being done. Uh, with those systems. So, you know, clearly the the, the mechanisms of reimbursement, the, the advertising, you know, completely influences how we look at these problems.
0: Now, um, in the recent report, that was the February 26th report from the uh, Public Library of Science Journal, mm-hmm. would I be right to say that, uh, that that report is pretty much saying that Prozac and other antidepressant drugs, serotonin uptake inhibitors, um, Are worthless except in in extreme cases.
1: I actually have been so busy. I have not actually read. I've read you know articles about the actual study, so I'm not you know qualified to comment on the study. But that's my sense of it: is that it's saying that. it's, the, the rates are not much better than placebo rates, um, and um, and also that they work when they work, they work well for uh, serious depression. And then when you farther you move away from that, then things become um, more chancy. And, and that, that's what, exactly what I argue in the mm-hmm. book is that they can be very very helpful for serious conditions. It's when you get away from that, then then also the risk reward benefit becomes uh, more dubious.
0: And we're speaking with Charles Bar- Barber, and the uh, book is Comfortably Numb, How Psychiatry is Medicating a Nation. Uh, in, in that same report, uh, I have the feeling that uh, there, they had the data on this before uh, they even uh, got the okay from our government to release the drug, that they didn't have uh, any sort of proof at all that right. this helped people. Uh, and is that true do you do you know anything about that I think
1: that? what that study and and other studies have done have looked at the FDA um, data, um, as opposed to what is necessarily published in um, academic journals or released by the drug companies, and so looking at that data, there is a more sobering view of um, of how effective the drugs are. Um, and some of this data has been has been released, and a, a very good researcher in Washington State has um, has looked at it and and found sort of similar things that uh, the drugs are are not, um, hugely different than placebo rates. If, if, if I remember correctly, um, he found about 45% of the time the drugs were effective and the placebo rate was 35%. Uh, and, um, the, the other, uh, context of this is that there have been two real world studies as in other words, thousands of people, not in controlled clinical trials sponsored by the drug companies, but the actual everyday usage of these drugs, uh, two studies done by the National Institute of Mental Health that came out a couple of years ago, one for antipsychotics, one for antidepressants. And again, they showed far more sobering uh, results in terms of the effectiveness of the drugs than the kind of thing that we were thinking about the drugs, say, a decade ago.
2: And this goes to a couple of issues that uh, that the uh, the study talks about. One is the uh, difficulty in getting a hold of, pre- of the pre- Release the trial data from drug companies they 're very guarded about the ingredients that go into these the chemical makeup of these mm-hmm. drugs, and as a result are uh, very very it 's very difficult to get what 's in the actual drug itself, and also they don 't uh, release these these studies that they internally I, I guess a few of them have come out that show in fact that they aren 't as effective as they 're being advertised to be so
1: Right, I know that uh, R.F. Khan, the, the researcher I cited in Washington State, used the Freedom of Information Act, I believe, to, to gain access uh, to the studies. And I think it—you know—it's it, it's a very American thing that we do when something comes out and it's new and it's exciting. You know, we, we're sort of uh, an optimistic people, you know, and so there's this buzz. And so when Prozac came out in 1988, it was touted as a wonder drug. Um, it appeared on the cover of Newsweek as a—you know—as a wonder drug. And um, we sort of get all excited, and you can see this with other drugs. It's not just psychiatric drugs. And then, you know, reality sets in, and, and you find the nuances of the drug, which, in the case of the SSRIs that we're talking about, you know, can be very effective for more serious conditions. And then, you know, with the far, but not as effective as we once thought. And then the farther you get away from that, you know, the more iffy it gets. The other thing is that they're, the side effects were um, overlooked um, in in. A, in the beginning. In contrast to earlier versions of antidepressants, the SSRIs had far fewer fewer side effects, and Mm -hmm. so they looked totally clean, and experience has shown that, particularly for some people, the side effects can be very difficult.
0: I was just going to say, what are some of those side effects?
1: Well, it, it appears that people, some people have just a very bad reaction to the drugs. Um, I, I, you know, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post um, a couple weeks ago, and I got about 300 emails from, from people, um, many of them talking about their experiences on the drugs, and many people talk about just the drugs clearly not agreeing with them and just feeling, um, sort of, uh, with In the case of some of the antipsychotics, this terrible feeling of crawling out of their, their skin kind of feeling, mm-hmm. um, people just not being themselves, uh, this very um, negative reaction. And then there's more conventional side effects of uh, sexual side effects, um, weight gain, particularly for some of the antipsychotics. Um, and then the other thing that's come up as we've become more experienced with the drugs is that Getting off of the drugs uh, discontinuing them is can be more problematic than we once thought, particularly for a, a minority of people um, and so you will find websites you know dedicated to the difficulties of getting off of some of the antidepressants written by people, and people weren't really aware of those issues uh, fifteen years ago at all
2: I, I know this is strongly denied by the by the drug companies, but uh, anecdotally at least you hear a, a lot of stories about people become. Uh, more suicidal on these drugs. And so I don't well, what, know if that's... Yeah,
1: what, what happened was the, um, uh, the uh, an FDA study, uh, or the FDA released a, a black box warning on antidepressants, uh, SSRI antidepressants, uh, a few years ago, saying that they led to slightly higher rates of suicidal ideation among uh, young, people young people when taken. They, I think in their research, um, they found that, it, it was four percent as opposed to two percent um, mm. taking placebo, if I remember correctly. So that's been, you know, established. It's very, you know, it can be a very controversial uh, thing. I, I, I attribute it to the difficult, primarily. There's these are complicated drugs, but to the the untoward reactions that some people have when first taking them, and that speaks to the importance of uh, monitoring. and and the other thing that's happened with those trends that I mentioned is that there's been a shift where psychiatric drugs were pretty much prescribed just by psychiatrists. And now, um, antidepressants, for example, are mainly prescribed by family doctors, the majority of them, who, you know, in a managed care environment, don't have time to do the follow-up. And so I think what it all speaks to is the importance for people when starting antidepressants that they have a follow-up and that they, they are followed and they have someone to communicate to if they're having difficulties with them.
2: I want to get into process a little bit because there's got to be ways that this whole process by which these drugs go from the development stage to market, That are, uh, that's more transparent. And uh, is part of the problem that we've seen uh, a, a degration in the uh, monitoring, the ability of the uh, FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, to monitor, or is it something that, th- that the companies have been in a concerted effort to hide what they're doing? How do we get into the process so that we can begin to eliminate these drugs that are truly counterproductive or minimally effective?
1: Well, I think the number one thing is that the FDA used to be um, totally funded by public money, and Mm. there was a law in the early 90s called the Prescription Drug User Fee Act that... um, that a, a large portion of the budget for evaluating drugs is actually paid for by the drug companies, and this has been reapproved three or four times. Um, and the argument for it was, it, with the extra funds, it would expedite the, the the speed with which drugs were approved, and the pipeline was very slow, and it has. Uh, sped up the pipeline. However, it goes back to that, you know, who's paying the bills, and and are you objectively looking at things? Also, since 2000, the FDA in particular, under the Bush administration, um, has become, many would argue, far more ineffectual. They've had a series of acting directors um, under Bush one and Clinton. There was a very active guy there for, I think, about 13 years called David Kessler, who, you know, took on Big tobacco, and was a real leader. And under our, th- our current president, there's been a series of acting directors. Um, Industry types. directors haven't been there, and also one of the directors got left under a shroud. And so, mm. polit- and and they've some people have argued that they've been very much under the sway of, of big pharma.
2: Yeah, and uh, to give some context to this, uh, big pharma, as it's referred to the the amalgamation of all these different companies, is a significant. Profit Center in the American economy and one of the largest industries in america today was yeah. this, is that a fair statement
1: yes, yeah, and you know you may have read. You know, that big pharma is in trouble, and, you know, in the last few years, um, they've certainly gotten a lot of bad press, and they they haven't seen the the extraordinary profits, uh, particularly of seven or eight years ago. Um, But I was surprised in sort of doing um, research right before my book went to press that in the Fortune 500 in 2006, um, big pharma was still way, way at the top of the profit ratings um, of, of American industries. I think they were second or 3rd very and profitable. And at, at something yeah. like a 15 or 16% profitability rate, which is, you know, extraordinary. So, um, yeah. you know, they continue to seem to do very well. Are there
0: any lasting effects to these drugs? Really what I'm asking is there a, uh, something to worry about for future generations? Is this having a, a negative effect on children now that will show up in 10 years?
1: Um, you know, there have been some studies that people taking them while pregnant have led to problematic uh, issues. You know, no one by by the very, um, you know, we don't know what it's like to take them for 30 or 40 years because no one has ever taken them for that long. I, I also think that one of the... Side effects, if you will, of all of this is that in our attention to the drugs and as the first line of dealing with depressive symptoms or even non-depressive symptoms, is that we've not looked at alternative ways of of approaching um, these issues. And so the second half of my book is very much about alternative ways. Uh, you know, a lot of them are not very high tech. They're not very sexy. You know, diet, exercise. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a way of really looking at the issues that underlie one 's behavior, has had very good outcomes um, for milder forms of depression and also has led in many studies to lower relapse rates in other words, you learn the skills to avoid uh, a situation, and so you 're less likely to get depressed uh, again as opposed to drugs so um, and then the other thing is you know we 've been very quick in america to if we have're feeling sad that that 's a bad thing you know. And again, I don't want to confuse this with major depression, but, um, you know, I I quote this wonderful novelist, Walker Percy, who says, if you're feeling a little bummed out or depressed or upset at the world, uh, maybe there's something right with you instead of something wrong with you. Maybe you're, you know... Maybe life is difficult.
2: It's a completely (laughs) rational reaction to the world we live in, I think.
1: Exactly, Uh, exactly. And our high-tech thing is, you know, there's something... We're not very good at tolerating difficulty, and that's probably a a great strength of our society, but it's, uh, you know, we want the high-tech, quick solution, and there are benefits to difficult emotions within reason. I'm not arguing for depression, but I'm also saying, you know, there's a huge difference between sadness and um, feeling upset with the world versus clinical major depression. Uh, I'm
2: gonna, we're speaking with Charles uh, Barber, and the book is comfortably numb. I just want to run through this, as you said, sort of alternatives to these drugs: mm-hmm. exercise, friends, cognitive uh, behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, counseling. Mm-hmm. These are things that are are low tech. And uh, before, is there an
0: uptick in any of those? Uh, as you yeah, think we're going to see that once people realize that taking these drugs isn't helping at all? You, and, and after they get hold of the information in the reports, uh, is there going to be an uptick, do you think, in those alternative methods?
1: I, I think there's something going on right now in our culture well, that you said- happened in England, a few Britain a few years ago, where sort of a reevaluation of the drugs. Um, and in Britain a few years ago, the government uh, proposed uh, enormous um, uh, investment in cognitive behavioral clinics around the country, and my book has come out around the time uh, these studies that you mentioned and there's also been a series of other books sort of about my my points I was making about you know melancholy not being mm-hmm. something that we absolutely need to get rid of, you know that maybe there's some utility to some difficult emotions there's been about four books actually that have come out in the last few months around the same topic and so I think there's something in the culture right now, and just the fact the reception of my book, which has been quite overwhelming, um, that I think people are very interested in sort of alter not not dismissing the drugs because absolutely they have their utility, but looking at, at a more holistic approach, a broader based approach, looking at the the root problems, and I also think um, looking at the social issues that how how you get better often happens in a social context. you know you mentioned friends um, you know it 's not hard to write up in a study but it's very clear to me that isolation begets depression, and depression begets isolation, and one of the better predictive factors for prognosis of depression is the strength of your uh, social network. And um, so these things that are harder to quantify are absolutely critical to getting better, and I've seen it in my work with even with people with really serious conditions, how they're treated, their, their day-to-day living environment, um, their, their friends friends their you know their peers is absolutely critical to the recovery process.
2: Well it's a fascinating book and one that uh, does bring bring the shine the light on just how medicated we have become as a nation. I want to thank you very much for being here Charles Barber. The book is comfortably numb how psychiatry is medicating a nation. Thank you for being here on Weekly Signals.
1: Thanks so much and uh, more information on my website which is charlesbarberwriting.com and I really appreciate your interest.
0: To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar, and this is
2: Weekly Signals.